I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The FT. The euro crisis hits Cyprus, but at least UK savers have some protection. Are emerging markets a safe haven? Experts ask if they're really protected from Europe's slowdown. And who will protect your pension? We asked the Minister about state benefits and income drawdown. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent and I'll be bringing you the lowdown in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Joe Cumbo. Hello. And Elaine Moore. Hello. Let's start then with the money news. This week, worried savers with Bank of Cyprus got some reassurance as its UK business applied to join the Deposit Protection Scheme and insulate its 50,000 British customers from further turmoil in Greece. The bank has around £1 billion worth of deposits in the UK, which are currently covered by the Cypriot Compensation Scheme. But as fears grow that Cyprus may need a bailout from Brussels, the bank has moved to reassure its UK customers that their money will be safe if it were to fail. It's already received initial approval from the Financial Services Authority to come under its regulatory umbrella, which will mean that its UK savers get the same protection, that's £85,000 per customer, as they have when they deposit money with British banks. Now, Elaine, um, this sounds like it will be good news when it happens, um, and it must mean that soon almost all banks that our listeners use should give some protection. Bank of Cyprus is one of the very few banks that's not already in the UK's deposit protection scheme. And um, if it all goes to plan, then it will be in the UK's scheme by mid-July. So that's when the sort of final ticks and crosses will be put through in a, a, via court and everything will be um, finalised. So then all we have is ING Direct and Triodos Bank. These are both Dutch banks. Uh, one is an ethical bank, one's a fairly large bank. Um, these two are not protected by the UK deposit scheme. They're protected by the home country's deposit scheme. But what we say is they are all protected, even Bank of Cyprus. You're still protected up to €100,000. So if the bank fails, you should theoretically get that money back. And €100,000, I think, as we've discussed on this, this show before, is not worth quite as much as it as it was, it's what, roughly £80,000. Under the UK scheme, it's 85000 So, So there is some protection uh, for all. I suppose it's probably worth recapping, um, especially as the focus is on Spain um, increasingly and the possibility of a, of a bailout there as well, that Santander UK 
is covered by the UK scheme. It is. It was very quick to point that out as well. So when Santander was downgraded by um, a credit rating agency, Moody's, it was very quick off the mark to say that if you're a UK saver and you put money into Santander UK, that money is not actually sent over to prop up the Spanish bank. It's a sort of separate entity. So your money stays in Britain. Not only that, you're also protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. This is what we're talking about. It protects you up to £85,000. So it's it's separated. This is also what Bank of Cyprus wants to do, just to give UK savers some reassurance that their money is not going to be sent over to help out Bank of Cyprus in Cyprus. It's going to be kept over here. As soon as it gets the Financial Services Compensation Scheme protection, it's, it then largely becomes irrelevant what happens to the money because um, the UK authorities will step in and provide the, the compensation. Obviously, no one's suggesting that anything, anything strange is going to happen to the money, but it, you get that peace of mind and don't have to worry about what's going on in these European countries. You do. What's also quite interesting, I think, about Bank of Cyprus is that it's got quite a lot of savers. It's got about 50,000 savers. What they were saying to me this uh, week was that they haven't really seen any outflows of money, which suggests that savers with Bank of Cyprus, they're not feeling too worried. They say that... Um, about 70% of their savers reinvest the money, keep their money with Bank of Cyprus once it kind of gets to the end of its maturity date. Most of their savers have got short-term bonds, six-month, one-year, two-year bonds. Most of their savers will put their money back into another bond with Bank of Cyprus. So savers obviously aren't too concerned. It seems that the the lessons from Iceland a few years ago, when a lot of savers had money with iSave, which offered fantastic deals, and were then stuck when the uh, when the bank failed, and there was a lot of confusion about where their money would come from. They weren't able to access their funds for quite a long time. Perhaps the fact that Europe has harmonised its deposit protection scheme, that we know that we get €100,000 or £85,000 in compensation, perhaps that's made people feel a bit safer. Yes, nobody panicking, which is uh, which is very good to see. Elaine, thank you very much for um, clarifying all of that for us. And for more on the deposit protection that is available, and also on some of the cash incentives that are now being offered for transferring your money to some UK banks, look out for Elaine's articles in the money section of this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, what the pensions minister had to say to FT money readers who asked about the future of their pensions. First, though, emerging markets. If there's one thing that investment managers can agree on, it's that most portfolios should have some exposure to emerging market equities or emerging markets bonds, or sometimes both. When investors were picking holdings for their individual savings accounts earlier this year, many advisors were still recommending emerging markets funds for anyone seeking long-term growth opportunities. But in the shorter term, some people now worry about an economic slowdown in China and other of the so-called BRIC economies as demand from their main export market, Europe, dries up. So we invited some of the gurus of emerging markets investing into our little studio here to debate the case for emerging markets as a relative safe haven. And here's what Tim Bond of OD Asset Management and Jerome Booth of Ashmore had to say when Elaine asked them about the effect of Europe on China. Tim, there's been some huge news from Europe. So although the Eurozone has technically avoided a recession, there's still a lot of uh, trouble in the area. And I think that that's had a huge effect on emerging markets, hasn't it? The, the idea mm. of the two being separate is not right. Um, no, I mean, I think the problem 
from a short term and cyclical point of view, the problem that you have at the moment is that European policy, both fiscal and monetary, are, are misaligned really for the state of the economy. And you know, hand on heart, I find it very difficult to build a case for a return to positive growth in Europe in the short term. Europe is the largest export market for a lot of for a lot of the emerging markets, and at the same time, um, China represents a bit of a problem. I'm very agnostic between the bear case and the bull case and the sort of neutral case in China. But the point is you can make quite a lot of different cases for China, all with equal validity, it seems. I, I think, pragmatically, the Chinese may have made a bit of a policy mistake in that they're going into a period of quite weak uh, demand from their biggest customer, which is Europe, um, at a time when they haven't really done much about generating much internal demand. So I'm not a big bear of China or anything, but just there are, you know, that whole emerging market sort of complex, which which at the end of the day does rest on either Chinese fortunes or on European fortunes. It's just a little bit suspect. I I really have to sort of jump in there because, you know, frankly, I see China as a stabilising force in the global economy. Um, And it's not all about China. There are another 60 countries you can invest in. And it is 85% of the world's population. And they're all highly diverse. And I would say that China has every policy option ahead of it compared with Europe, which was run out of options, has almost nowhere to go. I mean, the risks from a macroeconomic point of view are much, much higher in Europe than in China. And... um, Actually, the equity market is also extremely cheap. Currency is undervalued. There are issues of timing, of course. But if you're thinking about longer term you know, allocation, I just think you know, people are uh, fooling themselves as they think that the risks in China are in any way equivalent to the risks in, in, the, in the developed world, or as, the, as I call them, the, the HIDICs, the heavily indebted developed countries. So, Elaine, um, clearly some of these experts are not so worried about uh, what happens to Europe, even though it is the main export market for China and for many of the other uh, emerging economies. Yes, it's a very lively debate. There's a lot of differing opinions about the importance of BRIC economies, the importance of China within BRIC economies. But I think one of the most interesting points to come out is this idea that uh, China's growth, although it is connected to what's happening in Europe at the moment, is so impressive and is also increasingly more dependent on its uh, domestic consumers rather than exporting out to European consumers or US consumers, and that that will drive its growth in the future. And that seems to be um, you know, one of the big themes that um, not only come out of your discussion with, with the various investment managers, but you also read much more in um, you know, analyst notes. It, it, it is this burgeoning middle class, not just in China, India is frequently cited as a, uh, as a country undergoing this sort of transformation. And the way their consumption habits change, both in terms of, well, you know, from their diet through to their luxury goods. And it's not even in the BRIC economy. So when um, some of the economists and some investment managers have talked about emerging markets, frontier markets are now being discussed a lot more. There are these these terms, the next 11 or the civets. Yes, so exactly. The, 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 which economies are going to come next? Because everyone sort of still thinks about BRICs, Brazil, Russia, India, China, coined by Jim O'Neill of uh, Goldman Sachs. But um, tell us about, yeah, the, the up-and-coming uh, 
bubbly unders. Well, Jim O'Neill actually came up with the next terms, the next 11. Perhaps everybody is waiting for the next buzzy acronym from him. It's not him. very buzzy, is it? It's not quite as catchy as BRICS, and I don't know if it's going to be as, as successful a marketing term as BRICS has been for fund managers, but a lot of people are still talking about the next 11. I was going to say that within those, the idea of a middle-class consumer within those countries themselves is being used as the hook for what will drive their growth. So in a way, it doesn't necessarily matter so much. The European middle classes are spending a bit less on goods and services because uh, the middle class is within Russia, India, China or the next 11, Bangladesh, Egypt, Indonesia, Iran. Those middle classes will be spending a lot more. But then, of course, we have the political volatility or economic volatility to worry about, which makes this story slightly less certain for investors over here. Yes, and, and of course the risk factor um, you know, looms looms large when you consider equity holdings um, in these markets. What was the general view from your discussion, without giving away all of the, the secrets <laughs> that, that came out, what was the general view about whether people should increase maintain or decrease exposure? It was very hard to get a general view. There's lots of uh, differing opinions. There seemed to be an idea that from one side that you would be mad not to have emerging markets as a considerable portion of your portfolio, especially if you're a relatively young investor. So if you've got quite a long time horizon to invest in, then the growth of emerging markets is, is deemed to be what's going to fuel the growth of the whole world economy. So you need to have access to that. On the other side, there's a question that there's been a bull market in emerging markets. So is this the right time now? Are we coming in too late? Are investors being swayed by marketing techniques? Have they just read a lot of stories about the growth of emerging markets? And are they going to come in at the top of the market just at the wrong time, just as things start to get unsteady? So timing factors, risk factors all have to be weighed up uh, for the moment. Elaine, thank you very much. But if you'd like to know exactly what was said about timing factors, risk factors, and which markets to invest in. Um, you can listen to Elaine's roundtable debate, uh, the full unedited uh, discussion at ft.com forward slash money show. And you can read a transcript of uh, the guru's thoughts in the money section of the weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, pensions. Have you ever wished you could ask a politician what exactly he is doing about falling retirement incomes, increases to the state pension age, the abolition of the second state pension in favour of a flat £140 a week, and the removal of certain benefits for wealthier pensioners? Well, this week, we gave listeners to this show and readers of the Weekend Money section the chance to do exactly that. We asked you to send in your questions, and then we had them answered in person by the government's pensions minister, Steve Webb. Now, Joe, you were the person who made this all happen, uh, who put the minister on the spot and uh, uh, had him interrogated by our readers. Um, what did our readers and listeners want to know uh, from the minister, and what did he have to tell them? Well, we had plenty of questions coming in, and um, quite rightly so. There's been plenty of reform over the past several years to do with state pensions and personal pensions. We had lots of questions about how to take your retirement income, about income drawdown, about changes to income limits, about small pots, about women who are facing potentially um, big changes to their retirement age. But by far, the, mo the most questions that we received were about the state 
state pension about reforms which are proposed to come uh, to go through in about four years time well let's take that first of all then we'll come back to some of those other um, issues that, that you mentioned um, yes there is this reform of the state pension it's you know it's going to uh, go to a flat flat rate non-means tested the figure of 140 pounds a week is mentioned but I suppose what everyone's wanting to know is um, if you have been building up entitlements in the second state pension, used to be known as SERPs, um, what's going to happen to that when the change takes place? Well, it's quite a big worry for a lot of people because uh, if you have been building up additional pension uh, for, for all the years you've been at work, it could be an extra £160 on top of the basic state pension. So uh, understandably, a lot of people are worried about whether they will continue to receive those entitlements. And the message that we got from the Minister is that he wants to reassure readers that this reform will recognise existing entitlements which have been built up prior to the single-tier pension coming in. The single-tier will combine the additional and the basic to create £140 a week, which is the basic uh, level now, but that will probably drift up to about 160 But the message is that those rights will be protected so you won't be any worse off. So some some good news then uh, yes. from the Minister by the sounds of it. Let's go um, back to what you were saying about income drawdown. This is when people, um, they build up a pension fund but they don't use it to buy an annuity. They instead take the income they need f- directly from the fund. You have written you know, for some time about the problems people face when they do this now because the amount they're allowed to take has just been going down and down and down. Uh, what did the minister say? Well, the message from the minister was that the government appreciates that in the short term some of the other factors affecting drawdown rates may be combining with a change in the annual withdrawal limit to reduce individuals' total drawdown income. However, the government's reforms are based on longer-term considerations, so they're not really going to be budging um, on their position. And I've had um, a few experts who have been critical about this position um, look at his response and they've, they've said in uncertain terms that the situation still is fairly unacceptable for people who are existing clients of Drawdown who are facing the biggest cuts and they're still calling on the Minister to, and the government to reconsider their position at least for those um, clients who are moving now into the situation of re- reviewing their income limits and facing cuts of up to 50% but there's no change there. They're going to stick to, the, to what they've, they've done. Yes, yes. So probably for me to paraphrase the Minister but he seems to be saying I feel your pain but we're sticking to our position, sticking to our policy. Just finally, there have been some stories in uh, the press this week about certain benefits that you can get in retirement being cut for wealthier pensioners. Did the minister uh, have anything to say about that uh, when we asked him? Currently, if you're over 60, you get an entitlement to about £200 a year for your winter fuel payment and you you do get free bus passes and other free ITES, etc. There is uh, suggestions in some newspapers this week that there is a split in the cabinet that perhaps those entitlements should be taken away from the wealthier pensioners. Everyone's entitled to them at the moment, regardless if you're a millionaire or a pauper. the minister was asked by one of our readers what what will happen once the single state pension goes up to £140 a week and he said that your entitlements as part of the agreement, the, the agreement was, election promise was to keep those benefits so uh, they're protected as you know, this, the life of this parliament as, as far as we're aware. So you heard it here first. <laughs> Slightly indirectly, but from the Pensions Minister, Steve Webb. Joe, thank you very much uh, indeed for that. And if you would like to read the most popular questions and the Minister's 
answers to them, uh, make sure you take a look at the two-page special in the money section of your Weekend FT. Or you can go online to ft.com forward slash money and you can see how he dealt with every inquiry that you sent into him. But that's all we have time for in this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you will find all of these stories on our website, ft.com forward slash money. You can follow our tweets at twitter.com forward slash FT Money. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer, just email us. The address is money at ft.com. Next week, we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Elaine and Joe. Goodbye. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.